Christmas, the event in history when God moved in to be with us in Jesus. As sweet as the infant Jesus was, he is now anything but safe. For he brings back into our world, in himself, God's power and God's purpose. And that disrupts everything. Uh, someone once said, where our reality is invaded by the really real of God, all other reality must submit, yield, and be changed. Steve Gaines tells of an old-time preacher who was speaking about God sending fire from heaven onto Mount Carmel during the prophet Elijah's day. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. The preacher said that the presence of God is when God shows up and he shows off. God comes in not to take sides, but to take over. Human agendas fade away in the presence of the King of Kings. We could say it this way, Jesus is a disruptive Savior. Have you experienced how disruptive Jesus is? Just look at what happens when he calls his first disciples in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Here's what it says. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. Now, time here, it, it's not chronology. It's an event. An event has come. Now, what event is he referring to? Look what the text says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, Jesus takes the focus off of himself, and he points everyone to God, to God's kingdom, God's reign. And he says, it's here now. It's here on earth. Now watch what Jesus does, verses 16 and 17. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jump down to verse 19. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. That's it. Mark doesn't explain what Jesus said to convince the fishermen to follow him. Mark doesn't give us any details about the promises that Jesus may have made of reward that would entice them to follow him. Jesus doesn't even market the kingdom of God as a product, a product so appealing that people feel that they have to have it. Nope. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus simply calls the fishermen, follow me. And look how the disciples respond to Jesus calling. Verse 18 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. You see, when Jesus calls, follow me, the disciples don't say, Jesus, could, could you wait a few minutes? I got to go pack my bags. Actually, I have errands to run to tie up some loose ends before I follow you. Um, would it be possible for you to come back, say, next Tuesday at three? That would really work much better for me, Jesus. Could you do that? No. The disciples' response is immediate right now. But besides being immediate, their response is also drastic. They leave 
everything to follow Jesus. When Jesus calls, it's not about what we want. It's all about what he wants. Jesus reorients the lives of his disciples, demanding that he become the center of their worlds. See, I told you, Jesus is a disruptive Savior. Those who follow him must reorient everything in their lives. Look how disorienting Jesus was to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. In chapter 7, Paul is likely responding to questions the Corinthians had regarding how sex and slavery and celibacy are all impacted by the lordship of Jesus in their lives. As Paul writes his response, it is evident that Paul senses that Jesus' second coming is real soon. So he urges the Corinthians to be ready, for at any moment the heavens will split open for Jesus to return to make everything new for eternity. Well, this raises some really big questions for the Corinthians. If Jesus is coming back soon, what does responsibility as a Christian look like while we wait for Jesus to return? And here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, and those who mourn as if they did not, and those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form, is passing away. Hmm. Did you catch how Paul views the state of our world in verse 31? For this world in its present form is passing away. Paul looks at the world through the realization that world institutions, that's governments and corporations, that's the entertainment industry, that's universities, he's saying they're all temporary. Uh, structures in which we live, the boss to employee, the parent to child, the president to citizen, the husband to wife, temporary. Uh, social arrangements, family, religion, law, economy, class, temporary. They have no eternal future. Their days are numbered. Why? Because Paul is looking at the world the same way Jesus was in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, because he sees the kingdom of God is near. With God's kingdom being so close, Paul takes some of the ordinary, ordinary relationships that Christians have, and he gives advice on how to live out those relationships as a Christian. Did you catch his advice? Verse 29, those who are married have sexless marriage. Verse 30, those living with grief or joy, repress your emotions. Again, verse 30, in your business deals and in shopping, make your decisions as if you are poverty stricken. Remember, that new car you're going to buy, you may not even hit a thousand miles before Jesus returns. At that point, you won't have it for long. What do you call such a way of living? Disruptive. One commentator says this, Paul is describing 
radically world-denying. A radically world-denying faith. Sin is more than an event where we make a mistake. You see, the word for sin in the New Testament, it literally means misorientation. Sin disorients our hearts towards something that's less than God, and it creates less than a godly life. How we live as Christians should reveal that we are reoriented, reoriented towards another world, the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? Now, to calm everyone's mind, Paul is not speaking literally here. So here, husbands have husbands and wives keep having sex. Everyone, it's okay to express your emotions. Don't quit your job. Keep going to the mall. Buy what you need on Amazon. But if Paul isn't being literal, what is his point? Look at verse 31 again. Christians are to use the things of the world, here it is, as if not engrossed in them. As if not. Paul uses the extreme scenarios in verses 29 to 30 to help us understand the reorienting mindset that disciples of Jesus are to have. Our priority is to live as if this world is not to live as if this world is all there is. Don't allow yourself to get trapped and misled by the institutions and the structures and the mindset and the routines of this world. Don't become so attached to life in this temporary world that you forget eternity is just around the corner. Paul is calling the Corinthians to reorder their living, to live for the eternal. Don't simply settle for this temporary world. 1 Corinthians 7 gives us a snapshot of what a life disrupted by Jesus looks like. You see, faith is a reorientation of our lives. And the main question faith asks of each of us is not, what do you believe? But who do you trust? And that is exactly it. As disciples of Jesus, we accept the disruption of Jesus because we trust in the reliability of God. Listen to Psalm chapter 65, 5 to 12. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, listen to these descriptions. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Surely, the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods, though your riches increase. Do not set your heart on them. One thing. One thing God has spoken. Two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. David in this psalm is under heavy attack from from enemies. We see this in verses 3 to 4. 
And the psalmist shows the internal battle that he is having. Will he put his trust in humans or will he put his trust in God? By putting his trust in God, the anxiety and distress caused by other people, they've lost their power in the psalmist's life. Why? Because unlike human beings, God is like a rock, verses 6 and 7. God is safe. God is security from all enemies. God is also a deliverer, verse 7. And God is a refuge, verses 7 and 8. He's a refuge from anyone and anything that threatens our well-being. Now, you may be thinking, Troy, that's great, but I don't sense that from God. How can I get to that place of resting in God as my rock, resting in God as my deliverer and my refuge? Well, the psalmist actually tells us how to do this in verse 5. It says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. That's good, but here's, here is a Hebrew scholar's more literal translation that brings greater clarity to what the Hebrew actually says. It says this, be silent for God, my soul, for hope is from him. Be silent. It's the idea of waiting, of resting in peace with God. It's a picture of inner stillness as the psalmist submits himself to God. And we see this posture in Psalm 109, verse 4. It says this, In return for my friendship, they accuse me. Now, do you hear the threat? There's a danger. There are verbal attacks. There's an attempt to assassinate the psalmist's character. Now watch the posture of silence that the psalmist takes in verse 4. It says this, But I am a man of prayer. Prayer. Prayer is what resting in God looks like. You see, even though the, man, the psalmist's enemies attack him, he doesn't panic. He doesn't run around wondering what to do. He doesn't plot revenge. He doesn't fight back with the storm of words. No, he's silent. He's still. He's silent, not because he is weak, not because he's helpless or a coward. He is silent for God, his rock, his deliverer, his refuge. John Calvin calls this the grace of silence. I read of an old Jewish story. I read an old Jewish story of a four-year-old boy named Mordecai who refused to attend school and study Hebrew as a good Jewish boy should. Whenever his parents tried to immerse this young boy's mind in the Torah, the word of God, he would sneak away and he would play on the swing set. Every form of persuasion failed. And Mordecai remained stubborn. He remained defiant. The exasperated parents even brought him to a famous psychiatrist, but that also proved futile. Nothing changed the young boy's heart which seemed to grow more and more distant, lonely, and hardened every week towards the things of God. Finally, in utter desperation, Mordecai's parents brought him to the local rabbi, a warm and wise spiritual guide. And as the parents explained their problem, pouring out their frustration and despair, the rabbi listened intently. And without saying a word, he gently picked up Mordecai, took him in his arms, and he held him close to his chest. The rabbi held Mordecai close enough and tight enough so the young boy could feel the safe, rhythmic beating of the rabbi's heart. 
Then still without a word, he gently handed the child back to his parents. And from that point on, Mordecai listened to his parents. He studied the Torah, and when it was appropriate, he also slipped away to play on the swing set. Prayer, quiet time, spiritual discipline, Sabbath rest. All of these are practices of silence, ways of listening for God's heartbeat so we can trust Him more. Out of our trust in God, did you notice what we gain in verse 5? It says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. That is what the psalmist calls the congregation of Israel to do in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being a part of a congregation where believers, where everyone has this kind of trust in God? Where our first reaction to anything, all our situations, is prayer, prayer, and more prayer. So how do you follow a disruptive Savior? You trust Him at all times. Here's the point of today's sermon. Jesus may be disruptive, but He is also totally trustworthy. Trust Jesus.